0: For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be talking about the Star Wars canon and how someone probably should have carved it onto stone tablets or something. Hi, I'm Rob Hyard of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Each episode i will take a topic and apply it across whatever Star Wars media seems most appropriate. The Star Wars canon is a big topic. It's also one that has inspired much passionate argument, and let's be honest, probably some violence at some point. Part of the problem is that the canon has always been messy, to the point that different prints of the film during its original theatrical run were slightly different from one another. Did you hear the stormtroopers say, All right, check this side of the street. The door's locked. Move on to the next one. Or, all right, check that side of the street. It's secure. Move on to the next one. The former was the one heard in stereo-equipped theaters, and the latter was heard in monaural theaters, which were the more common type in the 70s. The stereo one made it into the home releases of the movie, which is a shame, because it makes the stormtrooper sound like dumbasses. I mean, the door is locked. Is that all the Rebellion had to do to keep the Empire at bay indefinitely? But I digress. There are a bunch of tiny little differences like this, mostly in the sound mixing, though I think this is the only example that changes actual dialogue. The reason is that while they were working on the monaural cut, they kept making tiny adjustments as they found cleaner takes or whatever. And this kind of thing almost certainly wouldn't have been noticed or commented on if Star Wars hadn't gone on to become one of the most beloved and rewatched movies of all time. But it was. And importantly for our discussion today, it spawned a whole bunch of other media. At first, Lucasfilm was pretty loose with renting out the Star Wars license. There were a handful of novels, the Marvel comic, a couple of cartoons, and the infamous holiday special none of which really had to fit together. But eventually, they got it into their heads this brand was going to stick around for a while, and there should probably be some kind of central authority trying to keep all these different pieces of media from stepping on each other. And so, the canon was born. Of course, by that point, it was already a mess, and they had to establish levels of canonicity, where anything that appeared in a Star Wars movie overrode anything else. Anything said or written by George Lucas overrode anything below that. And then there were levels for the novels, comics, video games, and whatnot created by others, And finally, the garbage bin of stuff that existed before they started canonizing things. So it was no longer a fact of the galaxy far, far away that Chewbacca's father apparently masturbated to a Jefferson Starship video, or whatever the hell was going on in the holiday special. So that was the birth of what would be called the Star Wars Expanded Universe, comprising all the novels and comics and video games and role-playing game content, etc., etc. And things persisted like this for quite a while. But as Lucas released the special editions, and then the prequels... Heaps of previously canonical content didn't make any sense. Boba Fett couldn't be a weird monk-like ascetic and also be flirting with the backup dancers in Jabba's palace, as depicted in the new version of Return of the Jedi. And no matter how you may have tried to paper over that, five years later we found out that Fett was a clone of the template for the entire clone army, a fact that had been mysteriously absent from all of the biographical information we'd seen about him thus far. I'm picking on Boba Fett because he's a particularly egregious example. But there are lots of elements of the old canon that just can't be squared with later, Lucas-created content. Another great example is that the much-beloved Heir to the Empire trilogy makes it pretty clear that Imperial officers were fighting against the clones during the Clone Wars, which obviously doesn't square with what we have since learned about them. So then Disney came along, bought the franchise, and declared that only the movies and the Clone Wars and Rebels cartoons were canon, along with any new material they would produce. To coin a phrase, they fired the canon. When I heard this news, I think my big emotional reaction was to say out loud to myself, huh, makes sense. After all, Disney was planning to make new movies set after Return of the Jedi, and the expanded universe had pretty well filled up that corner of the timeline, so that part definitely had to go. Might as well clear everything out and try to make the galaxy consistent. But many people were extremely unhappy about this. At first, I didn't really understand why, and I joined the chorus of internet scolds telling them no one is taking your books and comics away. You can still enjoy those stories no matter what Disney tells you. But as I thought more deeply about the issue, I realized what those people were mourning, and I got a little more compassionate about it. Because here's the deal fan canons, whether they have a Lucasfilm story group to manage them or not, will always, perforce, be organized around the medium that gets the most attention, generally the originating medium. Star Wars is a movie franchise first and foremost, so the movies will always be the anchor points around which the universe revolves, because those are the things that you can be pretty sure your audience knows. Next come TV shows, because they get the next highest audience engagement, followed, in some order, by books, comics, video games, and miscellaneous content. Finally comes fan fiction because being unofficial, it doesn't get the reach of anything that gets published and promoted through official channels. Now, to be completely clear, all this ranking I've just done has nothing whatsoever to do with the quality of the works in question. Just how many people in the general fandom will be familiar with a given thing. I have no doubt that there are fan fiction pieces that are much better than published novels, and I know personally that there are novels and cartoon episodes that I think are better than some of the movies. The practical effect of this is that any Star Wars thing anywhere can refer to Darth Vader and be confident that its audience knows who that is. And a mid-90s computer game can have Grand Admiral Thrawn, because heir to the Empire was a huge deal in the fandom when it came out. Also, Thrawn is rat. But the movies will only very rarely point at anything in lower levels of the canon and basically never in a way that requires the audience to understand the reference. This is why non-movie characters like Quinlan Voss or Harrison Dula are quickly name-dropped in situations where literally any name would do, so why not make it something that will give a percentage of the audience a little thrill? But one thing that's super weird about TV shows based on movies is that it doesn't take very many episodes of TV to make up way more screen time than the source movie. So if people watch your show, there will always be a percentage of people who have spent way more time with Ahsoka Tano than Luke Skywalker, and that's going to change how they think of what the real Star Wars is. There are three exceptions I can think of to this. One trivial, one possibly significant, and one that doesn't count. The trivial one is Ayla Secura, the male gazy Twi'lek babe who has non-speaking roles in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. She was originally a comics character and made the big time by being part of that emotional montage of Jedi getting murdered by their clone troopers. The possibly significant one is former Darth-now-just-mister Maul, showing up at the end of Solo. This was shocking precisely because it relied on non-movie knowledge to make any sense. Whether it turns out to be significant depends, to my way of thinking, on whether we ever see him in a movie again. Finally, the one that doesn't count is Boba Fett showing up on the holiday special before he appeared in Empire Strikes Back. He was already designed and planned for the sequel, so this is more of a sneak preview than any kind of canonicity jump. Don't at me. So the point of all this is that, if you're a fan of, say, the Eugene Vong novels, or the Dark Horse comics, or the Force Unleashed video games, it was an occasional thrill to find references to those things in other Star Wars media, an experience that was made more exciting by its rarity. But when Disney wiped all that out, they basically foreclosed on that forever. And that, I think, is what certain fans were mourning when that happened. The good news is that some stuff got rescued. The Clone Wars cartoon included a handful of characters that had previously been, been lower tier, like Quinlan Vos and Asajj Ventress. The Rebels cartoon pulled Thrawn back into continuity, along with a pair of new novels about him which, unsurprisingly, reference bits from the show. A lot of the basic character histories that have been developed have largely been maintained and expanded on, like Grand Moff Tarkin's background in the book, Tarkin. Okay, weirdly, that was all preamble, because what I really wanted to talk about was the special editions. To be clear, I'm not really a partisan in the special edition fight. I think it was an interesting experiment, and I'm pleased with some of the special effects upgrades. But I find Lucas's weird insistence that the original versions of the films should never be seen again really troubling. This is a man who argued eloquently and passionately before Congress against the colorization of black and white films, and who has made several movies that are indisputably important parts of cinematic history, but won't let the unaltered films back out into the world. What I'm interested in is how the special editions affect canonicity. To be clear, obviously all Star Wars media are works of fiction. But I still have a lizard brain urge to know what really happened. When the underwater monster on Dagobah spat R2-D2 out, did Luke tell him, You were lucky to get out of there, or You're lucky you don't taste very good? Frankly, the latter is a better line, giving Luke a touch of personality, and also explaining to the audience how R2 got out of there. But the former is what appeared in the special edition, so I guess that's official now. There are a bunch of these, and obviously the most famous is the Han Greedo standoff. Who ended it? Han shot first, says literally everyone. Well, except apparently George Lucas. He has said that he doesn't like what it says about Han's character arc that he shoots first, and many fans counter that this sets up his character arc. To me, the character arc question is kind of moot. Han is clearly planning to shoot Greedo, so it's incidental who winds up pulling the trigger first. But I hate the change for a different reason, which is that it looks stupid. Making Greedo miss from three feet away requires some strange-looking effects, and even more importantly, the scene was not filmed with the idea of Greedo shooting in mind. There'd be different coverage, there'd be some sort of indication in Greedo's face or body language where we see him tensing up and getting suspicious or something. Instead, we get the same composition we always had, optimized to see Greedo being killed without it being too gory, with no hint of what made him suddenly pull the trigger. On the other extreme, I like the reinsertion of the scene where Luke and Biggs meet briefly in the hangar before they fly off to destroy the Death Star. If you were listening very carefully in the original theatrical cut of the movie, you would know that Luke had a friend named Biggs on Tatooine and that this friend had left the planet at some point. But the Death Star mission is probably more than an hour later, and it's kind of a mumbled throwaway line, so it restores some pathos for Luke if you can see him meeting his friend again before we see that friend killed. Luke's reaction if you don't know that he and Biggs were already friends seems a little overdone, since we've already had several robopilots die in this battle with nary a reaction shot from Luke. But there are a couple of special edition changes that really do harm characterization for me, much more than Greedo shooting first harms Hans. The smaller one is that when Luke lets himself fall down the shaft on Cloud City, an action he does clearly on purpose of his own volition, he yells out, "No!" in, and this is the extra stupid part, in the Emperor's voice, from when he gets thrown down a big shaft. This feels dumb to me because, you know, Luke did this himself and shouldn't sound surprised, and especially shouldn't sound like the Emperor sounding surprised. But the bigger characterization change for my money is not long after this moment. In the original cut of The Empire Strikes Back, after the encounter with Luke is over, a strangely subdued Vader says to an Imperial flunky, Bring my shuttle. It's a very simple line that's dripping with emotion and humanizes the monster for a moment. In the special edition, in the same moment, he says, in a voice that doesn't seem to match, probably because James Earl Jones went and age 20 years in the meantime, Alert my Star Destroyer to prepare for my arrival. He says it in a generically bossy way with no real hint of any inner conflict, and it's dumb and I hate it. So what this means is that if, like me, you're interested in tracking, say, the change as Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader, and you're trying to apply the death of the author principle to look at only the text, Star Wars is a uniquely terrible text to work with. Not only is it inconsistent from literally the launch of the franchise, the author kept messing with it for about 30 years. Not only that, but Star Wars also encompasses many, many texts, so there's an ongoing challenge in deciding what to count if you're doing any kind of analysis. I suppose the most rigorous way to apply death of the author is to say that the first completed cut of the film, the stereo one, is the text, and everything else, including additions from George Lucas himself, is fan fiction. I like this approach, because it means that Lucas is just another fan who loves Star Wars and wants to add to it. It is disappointing, however, that stormtroopers are dumbasses. So those are my thoughts about Star Wars and canonicity, but I'd love to hear yours. If you've got another example or just want to discuss anything I've said here... Talk to me on Twitter at rhyrit, or come to the Chipperish forums if you'd like to have a longer conversation. If you'd like to support all the great podcasts here at Chipperish, head to our Patreon page and chip in a dollar a month or more. You can also support any podcast you love by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you.